Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 6th of January 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to have Alex Thompson and Vanessa Beely with us today. Uh, we have a lot to get through today, so we're just going to get straight on with it. Uh, obviously, many people have heard by now that uh, Julian Assange, his bail has been denied. He will stay in Belmarsh Prison. Uh, the judge said, uh, as a matter of fairness to the US, uh, sorry, as a matter of fairness, the US must be allowed to challenge my decision. Uh, she said that Assange had already demonstrated a, will, a willingness to flout the court orders that, she'd, that had been issued, uh, that he was likely to run, uh, that many countries, uh, or actually this was the, uh, the uh, opposition's, uh, the US's legal team were suggesting that there were many uh, countries that he uh, would offer protection to Assange. Uh, and so because of the flight risk, she said, the judge, that is, uh, he would uh, have to stay in Belmarsh. Uh, now, just a couple of images from the from outside. Thanks again from, from, for Drew uh, from Let Me Look TV uh, for these. Uh, but quite a number of people uh, turning up, uh, a lot of uh, journalists, a lot of independent journalists. Um, and in fact, uh, the police getting very excited about independent journalists uh, being there. Uh, and others, in fact. So in this case, a 92-year-old, the video is doing the rounds of, uh, of social media at the moment. Uh, this was a, a guy called Eric Levy, 92. Uh, pretty uh, hard uh, reaction from the police to him, but he was arrested this morning. Uh, lots of people not very happy about that at the time. Um, the police just continue to get uh, pretty rough over these situations. And there's also a video clip, which is very interesting, where a man in, I think it is London, is arrested for hugging people around him. Now he starts off by just doing it once. He's then making a point in front of the police. Uh, but sure enough, they then arrest him, his crime, hugging another human being. Yes. Uh, in the meantime, of course, uh, on Monday, after we uh, closed the programme, uh, Boris Johnson on Monday evening announced uh, that we're back into a full lockdown uh, for England. Of course, many people starting to call Boris Johnson, uh, you know, the English Prime Minister, the English Parliament, uh, the Scottish doing something slightly different, the Welsh doing something slightly different uh, in terms of timing, if not intent. Uh, and so uh, the, um, the Westminster certainly being confused as being a an English Parliament at the moment. But anyway, nonetheless, back into lockdown, uh, retail, hospitality, personal care services closing. Uh, quite a lot of them closing. Quite a lot of them seem to be still open. There still seems to be, there seem to be people getting around the rules to a certain degree. Yeah. Uh, many, many businesses still open. Uh, restaurants open only for delivery, takeaway, and click and collect is what uh, is being said. Uh, indoor and outdoor sports facilities uh, are also closed. Primary schools, secondary schools, uh, remote learning, but I know that there are a couple of schools not entirely uh, meeting the regulations there. Uh, some seem to be taking a bit of a stand and saying that enough's enough. We've got to provide better than remote learning for as many people as possible. Um, and, uh, and MPs uh, back in Parliament today. But the problem is, Brian, just unfortunately, the legislation is already in place. Uh, so uh, 
what are MPs in Parliament today to do? Well, they're going to debate this legislation and they're going to vote on it, but the legislation is already in place. Maybe we'll get Alex to comment on this in a second. But look, I saw many people pushing this around. Uh, this is not the legislation. This uh, is being pushed around on social media and so on. Coronavirus Bill, HC Bill 122. This, in fact, is the bill that became the full Coronavirus Act. Um, this is the statutory uh, instrument which has been uh, passed. 2021 number eight, Public Health comma England, the Health Protection Coronavirus Restrictions, number three, and All Tears England Amendment Regulations 2021. It was made on the 5th of January. It came into force uh, at midnight this morning, uh, just after midnight. Uh, and uh, this is what it says. Regulations made by the Secretary of State laid before Parliament under Section 45R of the Public Health Control of Disease Act 1984. So this statutory instrument is about that 1984 Act, not about the uh, Coronavirus Act. But anyway, this is, uh, this is one of the things that people are particularly concerned about. The fact that uh, this statutory instrument gives the government uh, the right to continue this lockdown until the 31st of March. Um, that's the thing that the uh, Tory rebels, there seem to be a few of them, uh, are pretty unhappy about. Uh, and uh, well, of course, the one person who isn't terribly unhappy about it, at least not the duration of it, uh, is this man. Keir Starmer. Now, he pushed out his address to the nation uh, over the last day or so. And, uh, well, he said we're at a critical moment in our fight against coronavirus and really pushing uh, a, a sort of fake uh, opposition here because he's not really opposing the policies of the government at all. He's agreeing with the policies of the government. He's opposing the way that they're being implemented and really wants to see them implemented uh, faster. Yeah, and we hear nothing else of the, of the Labour Party now, Mike. The Labour Party's effectively disappeared. It's just become spokesperson Keir Starmer. Well, don't worry. That uh, that statutory instrument is going to uh, is going to pass because Keir Starmer has decided that uh, it will, uh, and so most of the Labour Party will vote for it as well. But look, you note behind Keir Starmer there is a single union flag, Brian, uh, and you note the way that it's hanging. Uh, let's compare that if we go back to Boris's address from, from Monday evening and look at the way that the uh, union flags, uh, two of them, were hanging behind him. Uh, anybody, he, he did this earlier in the year for some of the live streams as well. Um, that's a double cross, Brian. Yeah. It looks like a double cross to me. And it looks like Boris is gloating to the nation about what he's doing. He's gloating, but I, I'm pretty sure that this man is under huge pressure, Mike. Is he being blackmailed? I could imagine he could be, but certainly he's just the puppet dangling on the end of the strings as other people are pulling pulling his wires to get him to um, produce this policy. So he's I, I, gloating, but you look at him, he looks, he looks absolutely... Knackered. I, I'm going to offer a slightly word. different interpretation of that. I think he's looking knackered because he isn't uh, succeeding in what he's doing. He it, isn't succeeding in getting people to comply with the lockdown. He isn't succeeding in getting a demand for the uh, for the, the vaccination, yeah. which we'll come on to in a second. But in terms of, I agree he's a puppet, but in terms of what kind of puppet he is, if you know his father and the books that the father has written, you, uh, you know you, that he's coming from yeah. a, a very... Uh, Population on eugenics yeah, we're talking about. And population yeah. control specifically. So, so uh, yes, he's coming from a particular point of view. Alex, just briefly, what are your thoughts on this business of, you know, supposedly laying a statutory instrument before Parliament, but not really laying it before Parliament because it's it's actually on the statute books before it, it comes to debate? 
Well, this was the way that Lord Hewitt of Bury uh, foresaw that things would go when a century ago he wrote a book called The New Despotism that in the Thatcher era was popular with some of the less bad people in government. If you have continental administrative law, I know that term has many meanings, but in the sense of uh, the minister can fine tune this uh, on the go and we will just nod things through, the minister will make uh, law as, as required then you're going to end up with this. And for the first few decades of it, the laying before Parliament had strict agreements. There would be certain numbers of working days. But this summer, Mike, we saw uh, statutory instruments laid on the Sunday evening before Parliament, before becoming the law of the land, a misused term, on the Monday at midnight. Uh, but this isn't the only trick that's pulled. The same has been done in parallel for centuries through the orders in council, the Privy Council being the real government, and not necessarily drawn from current MPs or cabinet ministers. Uh, decrees things in the name and with the power of the crown. It's only been a convention for centuries that that has a parallel track of legislation. Uh, EU membership, which has come and supposedly gone now, blew the lid on that and uh, showed that there were other ways of getting law onto the statute books without going through Parliament. But these converging, and it's interesting that that coronavirus uh, bill and amendments had in the brackets England. We're going to be focusing later on an interview between Julia Hartley Brewer and Amanda Martin, uh, a former national representative of teachers. And Amanda Martin says in that, but a slip of the tongue, she says the UK government and particularly the English government as it relates to teachers. So the idea of Her Majesty's government uh, is now being split up geographically and in terms of competence. Yes. Do you think that was really a slip of the tongue? Probably not, because, uh, well, uh, if anyone can shed light on whether Amanda Martin has been schooled in common purposes, then uh, that would be most interesting. But she does very much seem to be. She has all the talking points. And we're now getting people born and, and raised in England, who used not to think of the difference between England, Britain and the UK, uh, are now specifically choosing the word England, English government and English prime minister. Uh, it was Mark Drakeford the, Drakeford, the first minister of Wales, who first came to our attention doing that. But people in London and the home counties who never used to think of the Celtic fringe are now saying that they, they live under the rules of an English government. Yes. OK, well, look, uh, what's going on in Germany with respect to lockdown? It's hard to find coverage in Germany itself that isn't totally biased, but over the border in Switzerland, the Neue Zürcher Zeitung, the, the uh, New, New Zurich Gazette, uh, reports on uh, the reinforced German lockdown. People cannot, in, in, in the high tier areas, and, and a term that's now crossed from uh, the various UK jurisdictions to Germany, if you're in a high tier area, uh, you can't travel more than 15 kilometres. Uh, but what's really hard to, co to come by is reporting on the dynamics in the meeting that set this, because like the United States from the George H.W. presidency onwards, uh, with a, uh, a council of governors, uh, Germany also has a similarly unconstitutional way of getting the sub-national heads of government to agree transnational policy without it going through national parliaments. Very similar to what we were just talking about with regard to the United Kingdom and sub-national parts of the United Kingdom. So what happens is that the governors of Germany's 16 federal states, some of whom are aligned with the ruling Christian Democrats and some are opposition social Democrats, had a confab to agree how to coordinate measures, just like this unlawful Council of Governors in the United States has for the last decade and a bit. And what's most interesting is that the socialists were bending the ears of their conservative, supposedly, uh, fellow governors and saying, we should be breaking with Germany's pledge to procure vaccines for COVID only through European channels. Uh, we should be following the successful Anglo-American practice of making national bartering deals with the vaccine manufacturers. 
and it was the Christian Democrats, the ruling uh, ideology, which said, absolutely not, this is a lack of solidarity. And one of them, in very American style, even looked around the table, apparently, and said, can I get a pledge? Can I get a pledge from all you governors that you're not going to cave into vaccine nationalism and that you're going to wait your turn for Germany to get its doses through the EU? OK, right. Well, um, is the NHS telling us the truth about what's going on? We've seen that uh, people going into hospitals to film and seeing that the hospitals are at low occupancy, um, are being arrested. What else is going on in the background? Well, big thanks to a viewer for this one. Let's have a look at Sir Simon Stevens, uh, Chief Executive of NHS England. The words I'm about to put on screen, I'm putting in his mouth, but he is the Chief Executive of the organisation, which has said the following. Due to the coronavirus illness, COVID-19, and the need to release capacity across the NHS to support the response, we paused the collection and publication of some of our official statistics. Uh, Mike, what do you think that means? Uh, well, it means that uh, the official statistics of occupancy, for example, are now being paused, which means, well, frankly, they were hard enough to find in the first place. Yeah. But this means that there, there can be no oversight into how many people are actually in hospital and what kinds of treatment they're going to be getting. Right. This is... This is censorship. I'm going to call it censorship. We've also um, uh, had a very interesting um, uh, email in from a person who said, were we aware that doctors uh, in the NHS were now having to sign non-disclosure agreements? So clearly there's a lockdown. Let's have a look at the detail. This is part of NHS England's web page. Uh, blow it up on screen a bit. It says, due to the coronavirus illness and the need to release capacity across the NHS to respond, uh, to support the response, we paused the collection and publication of some of our official statistics. Initially, this applied to the statistics listed in Annex A. That's uh, back in July and September. The list of data collections that have been paused has now been updated for quarter three and quarter four, 2020-21. And then there's uh, a lot of information on this. So we're going to say, please, will people get onto the website and look at this information for yourself? But the NHS, using the excuse it does not have the capacity to process its own data, that statement must be a lie. It cannot possibly be true. Um, but it's being used to say that uh, key information is going to be withheld from the general public. These are some of the paused data sets, and you can see uh, what they're going to withhold. Critical, be uh, critical care bed capacity and urgent operations cancelled, delay transfers of care, cancelled elective. elective operations, audiology, uh, mixed sex accommodation, um, thrombosis, mental health community teams, activity, dementia assessments. So every uh, key area really that uh, the NHS is operating in to be withheld from the public. So there's no way of finding out whether they have actually paused treatment or not. Yeah. And yes. of course, a lot of people are talking about relatives and friends who are denied treatment or treatment's been withheld. Well, the NHS is now going to effectively lie to the public. They're not going to release the data which shows what they're doing. Now, who should we be looking at? These are the non-executive directors of NHS England. I have no idea whether they were involved in the, in the decision to withhold data. Uh, but they have a position and they're interesting people. We've got Lord David Pryor, 
Uh, he's chair of the non-executive directors, but he's also chairman of Lazard, the largest investment bank in the world. Uh, we've got a former Lloyds and International banker, David Roberts. We've got a director of the Institute of Global Health and Innovation at Imperial College. So that's a cosy relationship with Lord Darcy, I think is the correct way of describing it. We've got Noel Gordon, a former banking regulator. Uh, we've got uh, Rakesh Kapoor, interesting man because he did have a cleaning company, but that was changed to a health company and that's now been brought in, uh, well his expertise has been brought in alongside the NHS and we've got Mike Koo, former chief executive of Sainsbury's and if that's not enough advice for the NHS, uh, there's more banking, there's Tesco, Rent-A-Kill, Coca-Cola, John Lewis experience. So it seems to me that as the advice from the non-executive team increases, that the overall performance of the NHS is declining. But perhaps I'm being cynical in saying that. Yes. Now, of course, uh, the lockdown couldn't be uh, pursued without the support of the media. And certainly it has been there. So here's the mail uh, and their headline yesterday. One in 50 people now have COVID in the UK. But Prime Minister Boris Johnson says 1.3 million have now been vaccinated and pledges UK can get shots to most vulnerable by mid-February. Now, the one in 50 was uh, was something that was uh, I thought was an interesting statistic. I'd like to see the evidence for that. But anyway, uh, I just thought I would say to people, if you just think about the street you live on and how many people live on that street and uh, just plug that one in 50 number into it, and see whether what you're seeing in reality is fits with that or not. Well, with the inference that if you have it, you are suffering an ill and you're a strain on the NHS as yes. opposed to the fact that not only might you have it with no symptoms, you have had it with no symptoms. Uh, but uh, the other thing to think about is if one in 50 of people in the country um, have, have, have it at the moment, uh, how many of those people are going to die? Uh, how many... I'm sorry to be a bit uh, crude about this, but how many coffins are we seeing? How, can, how serious is this illness uh, and how many people are dying as a result? And again, as we've been asking since March last year, is the response appropriate to the illness? And I don't think it is. But in order to pump up the numbers, uh, we're going to go further. We're now going to create testing hubs for people with no symptoms. <laughs> uh, and of course, uh, when you've got no symptoms, then positive test results, if you have no symptoms, may well show that you don't have any uh, SARS-CoV-2 in your system. Uh, the, the likelihood of a false positive is much, much higher. Uh, and of course, this generates more cases of people that don't have symptoms. It helps drive the narrative of asymptomatic spreaders. It helps drive the narrative uh, that, uh, uh, you know, uh, well, it, it helps drive that narrative anyway. And uh, uh, so we've got a testing hub launched for T-siders without COVID symptoms uh, as infection rates continue to rise, says the T-side live headline. Uh, but uh, this is all about driving narratives more than anything else. Uh, so that brings us on to this. Uh, as cases spike, Europe malls delaying second coronavirus vaccine shot. This is from Politico. Now, I thought this was quite interesting because uh, they're talking, the UK is talking about delaying the vaccine, the second shot for people. Now, European countries following the UK's lead on this. But if we go back to uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Matt Hancock was saying the vaccine's only fully effective following the second dose. So doctors now saying, or some scientists now saying that the potential of some kind of new variant, uh, a new new variant coming out as a result of people that have only had partial vaccination, uh, creating uh, a new version of the uh, 
of the virus. Uh, that's a possibility. And again, the fear being ramped up as a result. So the Politico article then saying that uh, some European countries are considering whether to change back and join the UK in vaccinating as many people as possible with just one dose rather than the two administered during the clinical trials so far. But this is nonsense, as I say, because Matt Con Hancock was definitive that the, the, you're only fully, the vaccine's only fully effective after the second dose. Um, Denmark has announced its decision to delay the second dose of both the Pfizer and the Moderna jabs by six weeks. The German Health Ministry also confirmed looking at widening vaccination coverage by similar delays. Uh, scientists are divided, they say, and so it goes on. But here's the thing. What's really behind this? Is it about getting widespread coverage with one dose uh, and then following up with the second dose? Or is this more of what's going on? Uh, because this is uh, France 24, pressure grows on Macron after French vaccination fiasco. And what they're saying uh, under this video clip is here that President Emmanuel Macron on Monday faced growing pressure to accelerate France's COVID-19 vaccination drive, which has seen just a few hundred people receive the jab. Uh, the French leader himself reportedly livid over the sluggish pace. Uh, just over 500 people have received the vaccine so far in France and critics pointing uh, to 200,000 in Germany. 200,000 in Germany is pretty low as well. Uh, the UK, as, as the mail was showing there, claiming 1.4 million people. But I'm just not seeing, where, where is the, the, um, the, the demand for this? I don't, I'm not seeing people queuing up anywhere for it. Um, so um, I don't know what you think about that, Brian. Is, is this lockdown purely uh, the government's latest effort to drive demand for vaccine? Well, we, we've got a created crisis, Mike, and what comes on the back of that is also created. So the collapse of the country economically, uh, the imposition of vaccines or the pushing of vaccines, this is all part of a model of an applied psychological attack on people. Uh, we're not to think, we're just to follow the policies that the government give us, and we'll be doing a bit more on that later in the news. Uh, and in the meantime, Alex, uh, we've got to make sure we keep tabs on all those nasty anti-vaxxers, and uh, this is uh, Spain setting up a registry to do just that. The Minister of Health, Salvador Illa, gave an uh, interview with uh, Spanish TV channel 6, La Sexta, and said we will set up a registry and share it with our European partners of those, and he doesn't just mean Spanish citizens, but anyone with a resident address in Spain, who have been offered the vaccine and have, here's the killer adverb, simply refused it. That's clearly a moral colour uh, on Mr Iyaz's part. He thinks there's irresponsibility there. Who put that's the idea in his mind, who knows? I would be uh, very intrigued, actually, to know whether the United Kingdom is among those so-called European partners who will still be in receipt of that data. That will give us an anchor point for anyone who can find out as to just how far the uh, United Kingdom has Brexited for the purposes of big data. I suspect we may find that Britain still has view of that data somehow. Yes, uh, and just to, to remind or to let everybody know to look out for this article, uh, BMJ Opinion article, Peter Doshi, uh, the Pfizer and Moderna's 95% effective vaccines. We need more details and the raw data. So, so there's even a bit of pushback from within the scientific and medical community on this uh, because uh, he's making the point that Pfizer and Moderna and as far as I know AstraZeneca as well have not actually released the raw data to anybody. Uh, there, there's been press releases, there have been uh, some, you know, positive statements from them, uh, but no raw data for actual uh, analysis by anybody. Uh, and this is uh, 
uh, as far as he's concerned, uh, not a very good satisfactory situation. 371 individuals excluded from the efficacy analysis for important protocol deviations. So nobody knows what those important protocol deviations were. Uh, what is concerning, he said, is the imbalance between randomized groups and the number of these excluded individuals, 311 from the vaccine group versus 60 on the placebo. In contrast, in Moderna's trial, there were th just 36 participants excluded from the efficacy analysis, 12 in the vaccine group, 24 in the placebo group, and, and no explanation from Pfizer as to exactly what had gone on there. He went on to talk about individuals with a known history of a prior SARS-CoV-2 infection, uh, but the vaccine and safety and e efficacy uh, trials or studies weren't done on these recipients. Uh, he says that uh, addressing the many open questions about these trials requires access to the raw trial data, but no company seems to, to have shared data to any third party at this point. Pfizer says it'll make data available upon request and subject to review. Uh, but that's uh, not satisfactory. Uh, the same with Moderna, and, and uh, it'll be no different with Oxford slash AstraZeneca. And uh, so he is calling very strongly for that, uh, that data to be made available. Yeah, um, perhaps we should just add to that, Moit, that this is the sort of opportunity where our audience can be writing in and emailing uh, BMJ and encouraging them and thanking them for this analysis that they've published. So. Um, this is an important thing if you want more of the professional people to come forward, the support's got to be shown. Yes. Well, we just have a look at this one uh, quickly, the BBC doing what it does best. So a quote of uh, a part of an article by Jessica Parker, England's lockdown came into force legally overnight, but it's actually today that the measure will be brought before MPs. Now, this caught my eye because I thought how interesting we've, we've got. Of course, we've got government itself um, but clearly Westminster now is just not working. There's no proper debate. We don't even know where, where our MPs are. I have no idea where local MP Gary Streeter is. Presumably he'll be um, at home at his big house staying safe from COVID, but no debate in Westminster. We look at this lady's article. Um, that was the quote in the top line, England's lockdown came into force. Then any rebellion by Conservative MPs is expected to be smaller than those seen late last year on restrictions. However, some do want more of a say. They're begging for more of a say in the next couple of months over how long the regulations might last. Um, when you analyse this article, there is no analysis in it and it's quite clear that this lady doesn't understand what she's reporting she doesn't understand the significance of what's happening and the uh, the the impact on the country it's just a few sound bites mm. put together as though she's reporting now this is what i mentioned earlier um, a couple of days ago um, this article a psychological attack on the uk was posted on the uk column website I tweeted it out yesterday because I thought it was a really excellent article and my goodness what a response we've had on that. So over 600 retweets now, well over 700 likes. So people looking at this article which is saying that we are being attacked. This is the opening statement. We're in unprecedented times, not because of the deadliest virus known to mankind, but because we've never been attacked with such ferocious psychological methods as is deliberately being done today by our UK and Scottish governments. Measures to coerce us, manipulate us, scare us, shame us and make us shame other people for not following orders pertaining to COVID-19 measures. 
And uh, if you haven't already seen the article, there's the link on the screen. Do go and have a read, do share it. And I'll just say that uh, Alex Thompson and myself, a few days ago, uh, were also working on uh, an interview uh, to highlight the dangers of these psychological attacks. And that'll be coming up on the UK column shortly. Um, so if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us there and please do join the community. Uh, but also uh, feel free to share any material that you find on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, BitChute. Uh, the programs, the videos are all on those channels at the moment. There will be more coming. Uh, but uh, do share those. That helps us a lot if you do that, particularly in the light of the increasing censorship agenda. Indeed. Now, we had a very busy first day back. Uh, we've uh, recovered a bit and we're into the swing again. We wanted to thank everybody who has supported us over the last year, over uh, a number of years now. Uh, we put out this tweet yesterday, which was very well received. Thank you to everyone who supported UK Column over the last year. Your, your encouragement and support has been a great boost. Many new people have joined us during the 2020 curfews seeking answers. Many say that our news and analysis now keeps them sane, a telling compliment amongst the COVID madness. So we said thank you. Uh, and you said, well, you said quite a lot. Let's have a look. Uh, we've got Jeannie Ordinary Girl. You're a breath of fresh air in these tyrannical times. Thank you all for all you do to keep us sane in a mad world. Saw ITV News at Mums yesterday for the first time in six months and can't believe the utter bias they're churning out. It made me so angry. Glad you're back to restore truth and sanity. Uh, you all do a sterling job to keep us informed of the truth. Uh, the facts of truth love you guys just report on the facts and provide excellent analysis i've learned a great deal watching you this past year thank you so much you're truly a comfort and also helping me understand britain's political system which right about now is as delightful as ours here in the us uh, here's to better days ahead thank you for that us support uh, we're so happy to have you all back yesterday. Seriously, you have no idea how much you guys have kept me and my hubby sane. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts. I agree. I look forward to your news every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. It keeps my thinking straight and yes, sane. You expose the lies and reveal the truth. I'm so thankful because it gives me the answers I need to point my kids in the right direction. And I'll just end with these two, mother of hope. I love you guys and you're right. You are my dose of sanity. I hope many more people find you. Real journalism by people with inquiring minds using research, impartiality and critical thinking. Thank you for all you do. And this one was just lovely. You've been one of my greatest finds in 2020 at my Christmas. Uh, at my request, Christmas Prezi for Children was an annual subscription. Thank you for all your hard work. And I had to respond to that one with, wow, that's a lovely story. So we're going to say to our audience, we can only operate because of you. Thank you for your support. We do appreciate it. No, we're delighted to say we've Vanessa Bailey with us. Now, the last time Vanessa was on the programme, uh, we were talking about the uh, file dump from Anonymous from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. A couple of days ago, there was a new file dump appeared um, and I received an email to tell me about it. And it said, greetings, sirs and madams, we are anonymous. We continue our Operation HMB, HMG Trojan Horse aimed at exposing direct involvement of Her Majesty's government in internal affairs of many other countries. 
We've published the third part of our investigation. It includes dozens of confidential files of the UK's Foreign Commonwealth Office and its suppliers on Lebanon. Uh, the files confirm that the UK has infiltrated security and intelligence agencies of Lebanon. You will find names, ranks and salaries of UK assets who are in fact uh, Lebanon's top ranking, ranking officers. Uh, so, Vanessa, um, first of all, welcome to the programme. And um, I think, I think uh, one of the things that's particularly staggering about this is, first of all, the scale of it, the scale of the, the, the document dump. And mm. we're only going to be scratching the surface on this today, uh, yeah. giving, giving one example. But how far up the Lebanese uh, <laughs> political chain uh, this goes? It goes extremely high up. It goes up as far as the uh, current interior minister, Raya uh, Al-Hassan, which we'll come on to when we actually look at the spreadsheet um, that was within the file showing um, the, the serious level of embeddedment um, of, this, of, of these outreach organisations that are working on behalf of the UK Foreign Office, UK Aid, and the British, and working with the British Embassy in Beirut to effectively infiltrate and, and influence for change um, the security services in Beirut, the police services in Beirut, even military intelligence services um, in Beirut. It's an extraordinary operation. I mean, if we look at, and as you said, I mean, we're going to kind of whiz through it now, and I'm going to be writing it all up as soon as I can. Um, but we've, I've literally just opened the first, um, the first zip file. So I've, I've gone through the first um, raft of files. I've probably got about another five or six zip files to go through, so there's an awful lot more information to come, I'm guessing. But basically what this is focusing on, um, in the year 2017-2018, and I'm reading from the documents, this was the um, statement of requirements, I'm assuming from either the British Embassy or from the UK Foreign Office. Um, but the British Embassy undertook scoping exercises of the Lebanese justice process, um, looking at capacity, human rights compliance, etc. Um, and the outcome of this scoping exercise was a decision by British Embassy to focus future support on Lebanese Armed Forces Department of Military Intelligence, with peripheral support for the military tribunal, military police prisons, and other such focused security services. Um, now, obviously then, which is um, in line with, of course, how the British Foreign Office has run its operations to destabilize Syria, these operations are outsourced to various agencies that are working uh, hand in glove with the British government, funded, of course, uh, as we see when we look through these documents, by the Conflict uh, Stability and Security Fund, which, of course, was the fund used um, to siphon money to the White Helmets, to Mayday Rescue, um, to Adam Smith International, to Integrity, etc., etc. Um, the Conflict Stability and Security Fund is a, is a top secret, almost now, I think, two billion slush fund used by the government to further um, peace and stability in target regions. Of course, read that with inverted commas around it. Um, if we look again at the statement of requirements um, in these documents, the maximum budget is 600,000 per year, July 2018 to March 2020. Um, 
sorry, 350,000 a year, um, July 2018 to March 2020. Um, and each annual budget will need um, review in the December of the um, chosen year in order to ensure that they've reached 85% of the spend. Now, in these actual um, documents that I've gone through from Anonymous, we see that the primary um, outreach agent, if you like, is an organization called SIREN. Um, SIREN is focused in Jordan and Lebanon. It's looking at uh, change management, research monitoring and analysis, public sector accountability, human rights, public safety, national security, police advisor, hostile environment, awareness training, all very familiar to those of us that have studied um, the way that the British Foreign Office and British intelligence have worked to infiltrate and create shadow state organizations within target nations like Syria, for example. What's interesting, um, the team of SIREN, the founder and director, according to Company House, it was only incorporated in 2015, but some of the documents show its influence going back to 2008, so I need to check that. But its founder and director was a guy called uh, Jonathan McIver. The other three directors joined, interestingly, uh, in 2017, all of them joined in December 2017, just before this British embassy collaboration um, came into effect. Now, Jonathan McIver has a background in um, uh, consultancy in security service, policing, military uh, and intelligence. Um, Interestingly for you, Mike, Siren Associates is um, um, registered in County Antrim, and in fact, all uh, the directors originate from County Antrim. Um, if we look at, of course, what Siren is uh, covering in uh, Beirut, um, the COVID-19 response, and, of course, the uh, response to the Beirut blast, which devastated Beirut last year. Um, and it appears, um, when you read the SIREN website, um, their response to the explosion empowers state institutions to act in the public interest by providing them with technical solutions to coordinate the disaster response in a transparent and accountable way. So that effectively means that almost immediately British intelligence um, under the guise of these outreach agents have been involved in the investigation um, in the blast. Um, I see that you're on the slide, um, which is the direct beneficiary relationship management strategy for SIREN. Um, again, I'm reading from that slide. SIREN's stakeholder analysis and engagement strategy mapped against the uh, internal security forces uh, organogram, <laughs> providing strategic overview of key uh, internal security for stakeholders. Now, um, let's look at the top of that. Minister of Interior and Municipalities, Ryan El Hassan, is a long-term contact for SIREN directors, apparently according to some of the documents within the Anon files. Now, of course, she's currently Minister of Interior, previously um, Finance Minister. She has strong connections to Saad Hariri. And most importantly, of course, alongside Saad Hariri, she is against uh, the influence of Hezbollah in Lebanon. So we're starting to see the picture here um, that the UK Foreign Office, UK aid, the conflict, stability and security, 
poverty funds are effectively um, financing uh, an infiltration of um, Lebanon's security forces, military and intelligence, in order to potentially erect a, a barrier against Hezbollah influence inside um, Beirut. And I'll come at the end um, to the comments from um, Peter Ford, former ambassador to Syria and expert on the region. Yeah, Van um, Vanessa, just I... let me just let me interrupt you there for one Sorry. second, because because what you just said very much reminds me of that uh, quote that we put up regularly on the on the program from Juliet Harkin from BBC Media Action about about yeah. how Britain Britain's soft power infrastructure likes to go into countries, find who the uh, movers and ch changers are, who the opposition is, and work with those to create the change within within countries, the change that the Foreign Office wants to see. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. uh, you know, what that uh, what this organization Sarin seems to be about is, is they are a change agent. And, uh, you know, it's a bit surprising that a Northern Irish company, uh, a company established in Northern Ireland is so heavily involved in the Middle East uh, driving change. I mean, why would they be interested in driving this change unless it, uh, I mean, it's it's a rhetorical question really because it's funded <laughs> by the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, so that's clear. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the change. Again, I'm just going to read from the SIREN methodology file, um, which was among the documents that I've gone through. Um, support change champions to drive programme. Change champions, due to their combination of power, integrity and capacity to drive strategic change, are essential British Embassy, Beirut and programme allies in delivering the ISF transition from force to service. Um, the recent appointment of Raya al-Hassan as Minister of Interior and Municipalities represents a strategic opportunity. I've highlighted that, given Siren's long-standing relationship with the new minister. So clearly they had already um, uh, uh, created a strong connection with people that they consider, as you said, as Juliet Harkin did in Syria, with people they consider to be viable opposition and people that they can easily influence. Additionally, General Ahmed al -Hajj uh, head of the ISF Academy, Internal Security Forces Academy, and the ISF strategic planning team will remain essential to program success. So, you know, this organization has effectively embedded itself um, with high level, high ranking military intelligence and security offices. SIREN will continue to advise and consult both stakeholders on a regular monthly basis, etc. It goes on to talk about. Um, um, regular meetings, weekly, possibly daily meetings with the British Embassy. Interestingly, I did have inside information that the British ambassador in Lebanon has curiously um, handed in his re resignation for personal reasons, just as these documents um, hit the streets. I'm sure that's a coincidence. <laughs> um, but you also have Robert Broadhurst working for SIREN, former Metropolitan Police Service uh, Commander, who will expand the Public Order Manual of Guidance. Um, as I go back to uh, the director and founder of SIREN, Jonathan McIver, has driven ISF strategic change. We have the word change again and again in these documents over the past decade in Lebanon and has military and police experience. As you pointed out, Mike, of course, what does that lead us to speculate that he may possibly be involved with MI6? Um, and of course, uh, General Najim, uh, again, working for Siren, former ISF head of mobile forces. So you can see now how this organization has developed itself 
to basically consist of the great of, of the influences within those um, security forces inside Lebanon. Um, I don't know if you can bring up the slide. What are we on now? Oh, you're on this one. Okay. Uh, do you tell so, me what you want to see? Um, well, if you can bring up the salaries, because I think people yeah. would be very interested to see. Uh, you just mentioned why would this um, company incorporated in County Antrim be involved in effectively the destabilization of um, Lebanon at the behest of the UK Foreign Office? Well, let's have a look. Project director, maximum daily fee, 862 pounds. Um, project manager, 757 pounds. Junior consultant, 633. These are daily rates, by the way. Admin assistant, 385. I mean, these are fairly impressive salaries um, for this company. So I think that gives you a strong indication of why this project might be um, so attractive. And if we go down to the slide that you showed previously, um, this is the budget key information from uh, yeah. the Foreign and Commonwealth Office for Siren Associates running from the 1st of August 2019 to the 31st of March 2022. Um, if you go across, it's probably too small for most people to read, but it's basically covering all of the um, projects that I've mentioned so far. That's a budget of um, almost £15 million. Pounds. Um, now, what is interesting about Siren is when I started to go further through the documents, if you can bring up the, yes, thank you. Um, you'll look at the top, you can see that Siren is working in collaboration with Integrity. Now, where have we heard of Integrity before? Of course, in 2017, when I was working in East Aleppo and going through the documents that um, we found in the former uh, Nusra Front headquarters, White Helmet centres, local council centres in East Aleppo, which of course were occupied um, by terror terrorist groups dominated by Al-Qaeda. One of the documents we found um, was a contract for Integrity and Adam Smith. Um, thank you, Mike. Um, now, what is what is really interesting here, I'm just going to go quickly into this. I, I know that Mike hasn't got the LinkedIn um, image, but I'll just talk about it. Two of um, the integrity, uh, former integrity people that are mentioned in the SIREN documents, one is Sarah Raslan, um, who worked for Integrity until December 2019. So she was involved in the project um, in Syria where effectively Integrity and Adam Smith were receiving funding from the Conflict Stability and Security Fund to um, then funnel to various um, outreach agents based in Syria that were setting up what we euphemistically called local councils. Now, in East Aleppo, through my investigations, which are published at 21st Century Wire, um, we know that those local councils were headed up both by heads of the White Helmets and by leaders of Nusra Front and various other um, associated armed groups operating in East Aleppo. Now, Sarah Raslan, who is now also connected to Siren and to the Lebanon project, um, she worked for Integrity, but she also worked for Actors Strategy. Now, Actors Strategy, you might remember in 2019, an investigation, I think it's by the Sunday, Mail on Sunday, um, two former UK diplomats 
were given millions of taxpayers' money to run operations similar to that which Siren is now running. Um, and interestingly, that Mayday Rescue was running, of course, on behalf of the UK Foreign Office um, in countries like Syria and Iraq. Active strategy was found, um, it was set up, sorry, by Dr. Andrew Rathmel and Alex Martin, two former UK diplomats. Andrew Rathmel um, was given um, an award of valour. Now, of course, they were actually found to have embezzled the majority of the funds, the millions of taxpayers' money that were handed to this organisation to run operations in countries like Iraq and Syria. Um, they left over 80 ex-staff owed thousands. Uh, they left subsidiaries and suppliers owed millions and thousands. Um, and, of course, you know, forgive me for seeing the parallel between um, the accusations of fraud levied at James Lemessurier, who died in November 2019, of embezzling funds from Mayday Rescue, also being funded by the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, and ACTIS strategy that collapsed in 2019, and its two former UK diplomats accused of uh, fraud and embezzling. And both Missourier and Andrew Rathmel having been given awards by her, uh, by her Majesty. I'm sure that, again, that's just a coincidence. Um, Catherine Lockett, another um, integrity uh, person working with SIREN. Now, Catherine Lockett has connections to um, DFID, Department for International Development. She has experience um, working with the British government in a huge number of fields. So we see, again, this, this very, very close connection of this nexus of change and transformational um, agents working for the British government and being funded millions by the British government, which, of course, is currently destroying its own society um, through the, the COVID-19 project. Um, and yet it can find millions for, for arms and for these destabilisation projects abroad. Um, so, of so course, uh, Vanessa, um, it's, it's, it strikes me that, that what we have here is, is a gravy train for some of these non-governmental organisations um, and, uh, and, and a foreign policy agenda which is being pushed through these. Uh, now, is this, is this partly to, to keep this outside the remit of freedom of information or is it partly to, to give plausible deniability to the, to the British government? Why, why are they using these agencies rather than... Uh, doing it in-house, as it were? I think you're absolutely right. I think number one is plausible deniability. Of course, we know that that's why the White Helmets were, or we suspect that's why the White Helmets were created in 2013, because the um, media propaganda was starting mm. to fail in Syria. So they wanted to give the media a degree of plausible deniability and to give them regular outsourced, open sourced um, evidence and, and witness and um, testimonials, etc., to support the propaganda. Um, so, of course, it's primarily for plausible deniability. You know, they, as we saw actually with Adam Smith International, Adam Smith International have been the full guy on a number of occasions when, in fact, of course, it's the government that's being caught out, um, basically targeting certain nations for destabilization and revolution. And Adam Smith, um, if you actually go to my 21st Century Wire article, 
Um, I talk about the number of times that Adam Smith has been effectively, in my opinion, used as a fall guy. That's what these organisations do. They do the job on behalf of the of the UK Foreign Office, but then if it all goes pear-shaped, as of course it is right now because Anon is releasing um, these documents, then, then the government can basically wash its hands and say, yeah, but we didn't know they were doing it to that extent. We were giving them money for the X, Y, and Z, and we didn't realise that behind our backs, of course, they were in adding themselves with intelligence and they were destabilizing XYZ country. Um, but I think what's what's really interesting, I asked Peter Ford because I wanted to check whether this was a normal level of activity, let's right. say. So, so just before um, you continue, Peter Ford, of course, foreign, uh, former yeah. foreign office diplomat and ambassador. Uh, so he's, he's, yeah. he's, qual he's qualified to, to make a statement on this. Yeah, he is. Um, so I wrote to him and I, I basically, I sent him a, a brief summary of the documents I'd gone through. Now, his response to me um, this morning was this. I haven't had a chance to read everything, but what I have seen reminds me of my first ever job in the Foreign Office in the Caribbean Department. In those days of transition from Empire, the Foreign Office had a special department for training West Indian police forces called POLAD, Police Advisors Department, especially security branches, which needed inducting into the colonial methods of repression. And I, I would underline this colonial methods of repression because, of course, Mike, what we're actually seeing is neo-colonialism on, on full throttle. Um, whereas the British, you know, they no longer have the influence they had previous territorially in these countries. But now, of course, the way that they are achieving their colonialism is through infiltrating and gaining control and influence over the pivotal institutions within those countries. So Peter goes on to say, later I was a point man in our Cairo embassy for a pretty harmless police training program for the Egyptian police. Compared with that, and this is important, he says the scale, ambition, and cost of the program for Lebanon makes my jaw drop. It's transparently clear to this former Foreign Office insider that the entire purpose of the Lebanon police training program is to infiltrate, subvert, control and manipulate um, in ways designed to make the police a counterforce to Hezbollah and other democratic forces in Lebanon. Just as in the 1970s when leaving colonies, the UK tried to fix the legacy so as to retain influence and to prevent the emergence of radical popular movements. So that is it in a nutshell. I mean, when I started to go through these documents, I was shocked um, at the extent. Of course, in Syria, um, they didn't quite do it the, the same way. They didn't uh, embed themselves with official institutions. They embedded themselves with terrorist groups and kind of turned them into, into official institutions or shadow state institutions um, through the labelling of, of the, the gangs and groups as local councils, as civil society, except as white helmets, etc. Yes. Well, look, uh, thank you very much for that, Vanessa. That's fantastic. And as I say, this is just the start. We're just scratching the surface of what is here. But I'd like to get Alex's thoughts on what Vanessa's just uh, uh, delivered. Uh, Alex, uh, just uh, give us a brief uh, overview of what you think here. Three quick things, apart from uh, kudos to Vanessa for explaining this all so uh, eloquently. 
first of all, I have seen the whole chain that Vanessa describes with regards to uh, the country of focus that I had in British intelligence in the mid-2000s. Uh, and it started with uh, young people in government having come up from local or uh, economic bases, international government, being identified in meetings chaired by and hosted by the Cabinet Office as a technocrat we can work with someone in their 20s usually, and if they came from a conflict hotspot, the next stage would be that the MI6 officer in the room would say, well, shall we invite him over and dangle uh, in front of him the prospect of meeting intelligence people? That will uh, please him. Once they came over, favoured NGOs would always, always take them to Northern Ireland for a weekend. It's, uh, sorry to use this analogy, but it reminded me of the Alpha Course's Holy Spirit weekend. They came back converts, they came back new men, after having been to Northern Ireland and spoken to the fixers. May I suggest that might be a, a link with the Lisburn uh, registered company you have. Uh, the second thing is Rory Bremner had a couple of comedian sidekicks uh, who went under the name of Bird and Fortune. And if people look up this 2005 response to the assassination of Rafik Hariri called Bird and Fortune brackets Washington diplomat, you will find that the gentleman playing the British diplomat based in Washington in this Bush era is asked, well, what are you doing spreading democracy? And he replies, oh, well, what it means is that all these lovely people in Lebanon come out on the streets and demonstrate against the nasty Syrians who do things like blow up their prime minister. And then the gentleman playing uh, the journalist says, but what about the equal number of Lebanese who came out protesting in favour of the Syrians? And you can see that in the automatic subtitles there that the British diplomat says, they don't count. So do look up that sketch from 2005. And uh, the third and final thing I would say in response uh, is that I have now seen enough to make an analytical prediction and go out on a limb. Uh, Anonymous uh, previously gave me uh, linguistic hints in what their write-ups that they were probably French speakers. And now I've seen enough to think that the most likely scenario is that Anonymous is being driven by opposition-minded, generally conservative people in French intelligence who are disliking uh, Britain, uh, and particularly Britain in, uh, in its pro-Israeli guys, uh, attempts to uh, take all Hezbollah and Syrian influence out of Lebanon. And this is the kind of vector that gets millions thrown at it. In my own segment in a moment, we'll be talking about how the big cabinet office, FCO, or FCDO, we now have to call it, if it's been merged with it, vector for the former Soviet Union was pretty similar in that what we want is our people in place in intelligence so that they can reliably pin blame on the Russians. You need people in the Russian Russosphere, uh, in that case, reliably to point the finger and say, look, this has got the Ruskies' fingers, fingers uh, tips all over it, fingerprints. And in the same way, I think the, 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 the prime idea behind this takeover of Lebanese deep state policy for Britain, given that Britain is not the former colonial power, is at least to dislodge ri rival, i.e. French and Russian deep states, from being the dominant player in Lebanon. And for that, you need key men and women in the intelligence and security apparatus, uh, and particularly with regard to crowd control and also expression of free, free uh, expression. Uh, who can say, look at what the Syrians and Iranians are doing and pin blame on them. If you've got people within the region speaking a similar language who can do this plausibly, that's enough to get the whole of, shall we say, thinking London or the, the BBC watching British behind the agenda uh, of a regime change. So I think the overarching strategy, whichever re region you're looking at, is uh, look at us. We solved Northern Ireland. You know, hint, it was all a setup anyway, but we, we managed to solve it. If you uh, play your cards right and take British advice, you too can solve your frozen conflicts and uh, move, uh, boot the big brother, uh, the big bad uh, neighbour out of the region. Um, have you any comments just before I ask Alex one more question? 
Uh, I've actually got a lot, Mike, but I think we'll keep it for another time because this wants some some uh, far deeper analysis. What what was in my mind just to frame that very quickly was going back to Francis Maud and the sudden link up of intelligence with Israel. We talked about that. Uh, we pointed out that there was linkage from uh, GCHQ, from the security services, the Israeli Special Intelligence Unit, 8820 or something, I forgot the exact designator. But all of this came out in the public domain in UK, but it was only the UK column that put all the pieces together. And this operation to me sits very well with that framework. So I think we've got quite a lot of detail to do on this. Yes, well, look, Alex, I'm gonna, we're coming on to uh, cyber in one second, but you know, the implication of what you said there with respect to French uh, involvement in this implies an external hack. And, and I just I just want to throw this back at you a little bit because the scale of this to me seems to be uh, uh, huge and for this to be an external hack means that that somebody outside the Foreign Office has managed to get through every firewall and every level of security uh, to, to get access to a file server with this amount of data on it and has pulled this amount of data off. This seems unlikely to me, and I just I'm interested in your thoughts on this because it seems much more likely that this is somebody from inside is is passing this information on to someone else. Well, yes, I mean the the usual data download parameters apply the megabits per second transfer, and the question of was this a Seth Rich, a disgruntled insider, a kind of Peter Ford of his own generation who's still serving. It is a possibility, but with the with the greatest will in the world, world towards FCDO, as we now have to call them, uh, the kind of uh, person, especially the moral crusader in that environment, is not usually tech savvy enough to do this without detection. Now, I did say on a recent program where we were discussing this that FCO used to have uh, MI6 or GCHQ level uh, firewalls. Uh, since then, a well-qualified person has tipped me off that actually they were quite lackadaisical in many claims at uh, many instances, and so were MI6. He said, wouldn't surprise me, actually, I didn't want to be quite that blunt previous time, but now we're getting a bit of corroboration of this. It is possible uh, that a state hacked it. Um, it is possible, and I think France would just about have the means and the motive. Uh, to be able to do that. If it had been the Russians, I think there would have been uh, the usual hue and cry and the the, uh, the joint attribution of, of blame. We haven't got that. It's probably, uh, you know, shall we say, not quite as much of a rival as Russia if it's an external force. But yeah, possibly what happened is the human intelligence was the lead. A disgruntled person met up with a French counterpart, I would suggest perhaps, and said, well, it's not right what our, uh, shall we say, um, uh, regime change part of the deep state is doing and the French may have taken it from there just just a hypothesis yeah okay well look uh, thank you very much Vanessa I, I think we're gonna we're gonna follow this up in a week or two's time with uh, with the next batch yep for sure I, yeah. I think we need to I mean it's it is actually huge I of course you know in, in a normal world our media should be all over it but there's deafening silence from the BBC and Channel 4 and 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 yes as we would expect okay thank you very much Vanessa right let's uh, let's move on Alex and uh, uh, this uh, article on Swiss policy research uh, really spectacular Russian hacking NATO psyop revealed this is I know people uh, get lost in the weeds here but they might have heard names like Guccifer uh, for, uh, what was it? Co uh, cozy bear and what was the other one? Funny bear? Fancy bear. 
that's it, fancy bear. Well, here's the uh, the org chart. Uh, New Jersey and uh, Massachusetts turn out to be the endpoints uh, of the whole Russian hacking NATO psyop, according to Swiss policy research. And if people find that diagram too much, uh, the basic thing to look at is that I've put these two articles on the slide for the same pur for the purpose, right? The left-hand one is a uh, a prime example of. Uh, what used to be called uh, information security or infosec, but now it's usually called cyber. That is playing gamekeeper to make sure that other countries can't nick your sensitive information. On the right-hand side reports that the NSA, the uh, American Signals Intelligence Agency, which until now has had a united infosec branch, is now going to follow what Britain did a few years ago and undo the crown jewels of uh, uniquely the Five Eyes countries. It was always imprinted upon me as a GCHQ officer that the Five Eyes countries, the Anglo-American uh, establishment, had one up on the other competent countries like France, Germany and Russia because they had always had signals intelligence, the poaching and information security, the gamekeeping in the same building, sharing tricks and insights from each other. Uh, the only other, only other country that does that is the, the so-called Sixth Eye Israel, and Brian mentions Unit 8200, uh, which is the you know the famous example of uh, of an intelligence agency that does all of this and active shaping, which is illegal in most countries. You know, uh, actually changing data and masquerading as people. So why would you give up the unique uh, one-upmanship that you had in the Anglo-American sphere? Well, I would suggest that the reason why Trump is now being prevailed upon, and perhaps Biden will follow through with it if he gets into office, uh, the reason why you would separate them and why uh, GCHQ did this first by taking its branch and putting it in London as the new National Cybersecurity Center a few years ago, is that you want the sexy hard sell of, look, our, our placeman in Ukraine, in Lebanon, tell us it was the Ruskies, it was the, it was the Syrians, it was the Iranians what done it. You want that, but you don't want internal dissenters thinking, hmm, that doesn't add up. Uh, as a you know, as a well-informed signals intelligence or general techie guy who thinks that's not how the data works, that's not how we do things. We know how to protect against that. We advise these people to protect against this. All of that knowledge has to be divorced internally. I would suggest. Uh, so I think we're getting a substantial way closer to seeing the whole doctrine from the of the of the two thousands, the time I was serving, was basically uh, we're now going to be uh, playing tricks. Uh, on the countries we, we wish to undermine. But we don't want our own officers with more knowledge of the situation than others to be able to say that doesn't add up. Uh, so I think this comes, it comes together very nicely with what uh, Vanessa has suggested is, is going on in Lebanon. Yeah, okay. Okay, Alex, thank you for that. With an eye on the clock, let's move on very quickly. BBC, um, we've mentioned in this programme but many times before on the dirty dealings of BBC media action in Syria. We're seeing the BBC using techniques, uh, psychological techniques on people in UK. This headline caught my eye this morning, BBC to put lessons on TV during lockdown. And uh, we've got uh, Kate Thistleton, who's the lady in the picture. She's apparently going to front the new content. Um, I've been a bit cynical here. Propaganda straight into children and young people as BBC Two and CBBC deliver education because this is uh, what's coming. Let's have a look at what the BBC is now up to. They're going to show curriculum based programmes on TV from Monday. They will include three hours of primary school programming. At least they're admitting what they're doing. Three hours of programming young children every weekday on CBBC and at least two hours for secondary pupils on BBC Two. Uh, during the first down lockdown in the spring, lessons were available on iPlayer, Red Button and online, but not on regular TV channels. 
Um, and the, the move, I've obviously pre-seen some of this, the move come, comes amid concerns that low-income families may struggle to afford data packages for their children to take part in online learning. So we take away their jobs, we destroy the economy, mm. we take away jobs, particularly of low-income people, and then we cynically say, well, we're going to help with this by the BBC's going to get at the children. And of course, the children now starting to suffer as a result of lockdown. We know there's an increase in mental health problems, but the BBC doesn't want to get involved in that. So let's look at who the BBC puts forward. Here she is, Katie Thistleton. If you go to her Twitter page, encourage you to do this, to read what is in her mind. It's astonishing. The first thing is she's advertising her book because she's apparently a trainee counsellor. She's a psychologies magazine columnist and she's a mental health ambassador. And she apparently is putting together the content for our children, helped by colleagues such as these wonderful role models. Very, I'm not allowed to use the word in 2021. We really need to be paying attention to what's going on here. So what else can we tell you about this lady? Well, she says that she's deep into serial, serial killer drama. Uh, so she says here, finished a drama about a serial killer, head straight to Wiki to read about them all night. Good. She's so obsessed with serial killers, she reads about them all night. Speaking of things the BBC do well, I'm knee deep in the serpent and my God, it's gripping. So this lady, would you put her near children? I wouldn't have her near my children from what she is getting very excited about. Death, serial killers watching that sort of film all night. But she praises the BBC for pumping this stuff out. And as the BBC says on its own warning for the serpent, contains strong language, that they mean foul language is what they're talking about. Some, some upsetting scenes, that'll be the serial murders. So that's who's coming in to teach the children. And uh, one of our MPs got to say, well, the BBC has helped the nation through some of the toughest moments of the last century. This is Oliver Bowden, the occupying minister for digital, digital that, culture, media and sport. That's a typo. It's Oliver Dowden. With a Dowden. Day. It yes. should be Dowden. Thank you for picking me up on that. That's part of my education. <laughs> uh, you understand. And for the next few weeks, it will help our children learn while we stay home, protect the NHS and save lives. Uh, notice the mantra, stay home, protect the NHS and save lives. And uh, this will be a lifeline to parents and I welcome the BBC playing its part. So this is a lovely incestuous little uh, relationship, but let's give the final word to Boris Johnson. He says that he can only praise the BBC's fantastic plans to brainwash our children. So we hope that uh, parents will be switching off the TV and protecting their children from the BBC. Uh, now we have to mention uh, the events of yesterday with respect to uh, talk radio. Uh, talk radio, of course, uh, the home of free speech, as they call it. Julia Hartley Brewer is certainly running point in the mainstream media in challenging the uh, coronavirus COVID narrative uh, and asking some pretty strong questions of uh, MPs and others, but also giving a voice to uh, some of the science uh, dissent that, that exists. Uh, well, the yesterday, of course, as most people will know, uh, they ended up being censored by being kicked off YouTube. Um, well, perhaps because of who owns them, uh, they managed to be uncensored by the end of the day. So YouTube put them back online again. So let's look at the statement. 
uh, we're pleased to receive the following statement from YouTube, said Talk Radio. Talk Radio's YouTube channel was briefly suspended, but upon further review, it is now being reinstated. We quickly, we quickly remove flagged content that violates our community guidelines, including COVID-19 content uh, that explicitly contradicts expert consensus from local health authorities or the World Health Organization. We make exceptions for material posted with an educational, documentary, scientific or artistic purpose, as was deemed in this case. Um, so the question is uh, um, whether uh, this reinstatement so quickly uh, was because of weight thrown uh, by the Murdoch uh, Empire. Um, but certainly I'd suspect that that same response would not have been achieved by, for example, the UK column had they taken mm -hmm. us down for the same reasons. Um, and, uh, and so I'm glad to see them back online again. But really, this is another shot across the bows and another warning to everybody. That uh, if you don't agree with the consensus, exactly. if you don't agree with the consensus, if you, are, if you have any form of opposing view, free speech is gone and they're going to close you down, is yes. what it says. Yes. Now, uh, Alex, just uh, very briefly, um, this is uh, Swiss entrepreneur uh, Daniel Modell. What's he up to? I've put out a number of uh, parleys, as they're called on parlor, under my handle Eastern Approaches, with no hyphen or space between them, uh, with regard to a series of uh, rushes which have been put out by a Swiss documentary maker. And in this case, he's uh, interviewing a fellow Swiss, uh, Daniel Model, an entrepreneur. Uh, the documentary is destined to be called Planet Lockdown, and that's the name of one of the guy's two YouTube channels. And the other is, I think, Truth Matters. And I would suggest that people subscribe to both of those YouTube channels and watch the interviews avidly. Here is Czech uh, ex-president Václav Klaus uh, talking about uh, his insight from a friend that the whole of globalization is predicated upon the loss of well-defined property rights, certainly food for thought. And uh, this is an, an outstanding pair of channels, I think. And as, uh, if you want to know what, shall we say, the, the dissenting continental Europeans in particular are thinking, usually speaking very good English in this series. There's even got um, a minor royal from Liechtenstein to, to talk uh, to the camera for this, this series. This is well worth doing. Uh, I think, by the way, with regard to talk radio, what may have swung it is that on the a few hours before the uh, what turned out to be the temporary banning of Talk Radio's channel, they interviewed, or Julia Hartley Brewer in particular, interviewed uh, this lady, Amanda Louise Martin, uh, formerly uh, a spokesman for one of the teachers' um, unions. And here she is on her uh, social media account saying, this teacher believes Black Lives Matter. Uh, she, she spouted the whole bunch of common purpose stuff during the interview. Uh, teachers first in vaccination, that's between six and nine minutes in the interview. It had Julia Hartley Bluer saying, I'm genuinely shocked that you want your teachers uh, to be prioritized in supposedly a, a health cure uh, above uh, 70 and 80 year olds. Uh, but also Amanda Martin spouted a, lo a lot of stuff about we want mechanization of the classroom, basically. We want government to guarantee total safety of everything for teachers. Basically, you know, as with parts of the NHS now, we're a superior class of humanity, uh, a bit like from the police training, officer safety before serving the public. Uh, but because Julia Hartley Brewer was so visibly shocked and because she represents, dare I say, the face of Middle England, I think that was probably a bit too hot to handle. Uh, for them. It may have been the, the straw that broke the camel's back uh, and may have got Talk Radio's channel taken down, albeit temporarily. Yes, okay. 
Alex, uh, thank you very much for that. We're over time and we think out of time. We'll save the, the material we've got for forthcoming news because it's still valid. Um, I think a special UK column news today, so much information there for uh, people to take in and also research, do follow up, do check out, um, do go and look at what we're reporting, make sure it's correct. And if you um, agree with us, you find more information, we'd love to have it from you. So we'll end there. Thank you all for joining us. We'll just mention we're not doing a news extra today. Sorry about that, uh, but we Brian has to... to... I have a commitment. Yes. So, um, so this, this will be the end of the news. My last statement is uh, I know that several people are asking for an update on David Noakes and Lynn Thayer. Uh, I'll do my best to get that for you as soon as possible. Uh, but uh, it's, it's nice to know that you're all still interested. So Vanessa and um, Alex, thank you very much for joining us. We'll end there. Bye-bye.